0: This is Beyond BC, a podcast illuminating the professional careers and accomplishments for members of the Berkeley Carroll School's alumni community. I'm your host, Tim Quinn, class of 2005. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Rebecca Ballhouse, class of 2009. Rebecca is currently a White House reporter for The Wall Street Journal. After graduating from Brown University in 2013, she started at the Journal's Washington DC Bureau. And since joining, she's covered the Trump administration, Campaign finance, the Russia investigation, and the federal investigation into Michael Cohen. In 2019, along with other members of her team at the Journal, Rebecca won a Pulitzer Prize for her coverage of Donald Trump's direction of payments from Michael Cohen to Stormy Daniels. She's also appeared as a political analyst for NPR, MSNBC, and CNN. Rebecca, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. So it is Very tempting to get into your work at the Wall Street Journal and your coverage of the Trump administration. But let's take a step back and tell me about where it kind of all began for in terms of your interest in journalism. And uh, did you have other aspirations when you were much younger?
1: Uh, I think journalism was really always the the field that I was passionate about, not necessarily as a career when I was starting, but just as something that I thought seemed really fun. Um, so I remember when I got to the Lincoln Place building in, for middle school, the main thing that I was excited about was being able to work at a newspaper. Um,
0: and that was the blotter at the time, I believe, right?
1: Right. So so the blotter was the high school newspaper. And I had always thought that like once you get to that building, you get to join the blotter. <laughs> That was not the case. Like an initiation of sorts. (laughs) Right. So it turns out just for the high school at the time at least. um, So I was really desperate to have a middle school newspaper. So me and a couple of my friends started this – like it was like a couple sheets of paper that you staple together, uh, that we called the middle school newspaper. Um, we had a, a naming contest, I think, because we were like very divided over over what to call it, uh, and it ended up being Miss Grimes Lamb, who I don't yes. know if she's still there, who had the winning entry, which was "Mind in the
0: Middle." Oh, that's good. Okay.
1: Yeah, I I thought it was good. <laughs>
0: and so there, your your young career was born. Yes. Okay, and so then you, I guess, you reported. You're involved in some journalism through high school. And then for Brown as well, where you went to college.
1: Right. So I joined the blotter finally in ninth grade. Um, and when I got to Brown, I started covering the metro section at the daily newspaper there and, um, and then was editor later on. And that was a really exciting experience because it was my first daily newspaper. I got to sort of see the process of putting together this paper every night, laying it out. Seeing it printed and then ultimately often used as like the garbage (laughs) disposal in the cafeteria, but still. Um, So that was that was a really rewarding experience.
0: Even back then when you were at Brown, what were the types of issues that were you drawn to any issues in particular? Um, Was there a particular focus to the newspaper?
1: So I worked in the metro section, which dealt a lot with city and state politics. And that was always political coverage was always what I was really interested in doing. Um, And in uh, Rhode Island in particular and in Providence, there was a lot of mayhem at the time. There was, you know, they have a long history of sort of scandals in the mayor's Mm -hmm. office and that kind of thing. And um, none of the particularly juicy stuff was happening while I was there, but it was still a very interesting area to cover. Then
0: you graduated, and did you start working at the journal right away?
1: So I had applied for an internship in the Washington office in, I guess, the fall of my senior year of college, and I went there that summer, like six days after I graduated, and I really liked it. I mean, it was very nerve-wracking to be surrounded by all these impressive journalists right out of college who had been covering Washington and politics for decades, but It was a really welcoming office they let Mm -hmm. me do a lot just right off the bat Um, and then that fall they were trying to to boost their digital presence and um, and wanted to start a newsletter so they kept me on to sort of help with that
0: when when you started early on was there anybody in the field who you thought um, approached the work in the way that you wanted to in your career
1: I think that I was less drawn to specific reporters growing up. I was always really fascinated with the field of journalism and my sure. parents, you know, read uh, the New York times every morning mm-hmm. and were really interested in the news. And I, I, Really liked um, a lot of a lot of books about Washington. I felt like mm-hmm. that was an area I was really drawn to. I remember Christopher Buckley in particular. Yeah. I think I first read him in um, in a tenth grade class, actually, about satire taught mm. by Miss Perry at the time, and we read "Thank You for Smoking." And I read a bunch of his other books, which are basically all satirical takes on Washington. Mm. But I don't think I had any. I don't think I, I thought of journalism necessarily as a place where like I want to be this one person or sure. or that I was even really aware of any news celebrities at the time. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I mean that's always been a little bit of a thing, but I think that's
0: exploded
1: a lot in the last yeah. couple years. And
0: and I think to one of the points you're alluding to is that it's changed so much mm-hmm. and the nature in which people get information. Um, how would you how would you characterize? So you joined around 2013 mm-hmm. and there, are, at least in my mind, and I think of many, there's, in a way, a dividing line starting in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. Um, what was life like before the election <laughs> in terms of coverage, even how you saw your your fellow reporters approaching things? Was there anything um, that in hindsight w- is notable?
1: Uh, I, I mean, I think every reporter in Washington would say that knowing what we know now, I mean, I, I don't think that I think at least initially, people obviously did not take Trump seriously, starting with mm-hmm. this idea that, you know, he'd been talking for years and years about running for president. Everyone said he's not going to run. Sure. There was a reporter, I remember, who said, we're not going to put Donald Trump's name in print oh, until wow. he's like really serious about this. That quickly changed because he entered the race and and was leading in the polls pretty early on. Um but you know, it was it was a really different time before he became president, mm-hmm. and and especially before he started running his campaign. I mean, there was just more of this idea of what you can and can't say, and right. and I think more of a regular order to the news cycle yes. than we see now.
0: You currently report uh, you're you're a reporter for the White House, mm-hmm. and you've covered campaign finance. When did you start covering campaign finance?
1: That was something I started sort of early on when I when I started after my internship. Um, there was one reporter in the bureau who was covering campaign finance at the time, and. Uh, And was eager, I think, to to have someone else know how to do it so that he could do some more broader investigative stories and Mm -hmm. not necessarily always be tethered to some of the daily news. Um, So he really taught me how to use the Federal Election Commission database, um, what kinds of stories to look for, what kinds of stories the paper always wanted at certain points of the campaign. And and
0: was it, it, sorry to interrupt, was it a... um an area of coverage where there's a lot of breaking news at the time? Was it, how is it regarded when you first picked up the beat?
1: It, I mean, campaign finance, there's never really breaking news. Um, I think it was an area where this, that's interesting for the journal in particular because we're a finance newspaper, um, but was one that I think often got overlooked. I don't know that right. it's necessarily one where a lot of political, a lot of campaign reporters were not necessarily drawn to, you know, pouring through spreadsheets mm-hmm. and um, databases and things like that. But for me, as someone starting out, it was really exciting to have this area that I could sort of develop as right. my own.
0: Yeah. Then you ultimately... You started covering um, Michael Cohen and certain payments that were directed by President Trump. Um, tell us about that. How did that unfold? When you were covering that story, did you um did you know right away that it could be something um, quite meaningful?
1: That I think that was a story that right off the bat, at least when I got engaged with it, seemed like it was going to be an explosive story. So my two colleagues in um, in New York had written a story four days before the uh, the election, saying that um, the publisher of the National Enquirer had arranged to pay off a former Playboy model who was saying she had a fa- mm-hmm. had an affair with Trump. Um, and then they worked from for the full year after that on trying to get the story of this other hush payment to Stormy Daniels. And in January 2018, they broke that story, and then it sort of exploded from there. Mm-hmm. And it was very clear that the federal investigation was going to heat up. Um, actually, I should say, when they first broke the story, it was a big story, but it was like yet another crazy thing that Trump has done. Sure, Will this sure. one stick? And then I think it was that spring, as we kept, you know, reporting more details of it, um, and Michael Cohen kept sort of speaking publicly and not mm-hmm. being totally clear about what had happened. And then the FBI raided his properties, right. and that was when it really exploded. Um, and I think it was pretty clear right off the bat then that that this was not something that was going to go away.
0: Certainly. And so you were part of uh, what was spearheading, I think, uncovering a lot of the truth related to that, you and your team at the journal. When I'm curious, when you hit send or you, you make a, a story public, it, there must be an immense amount of pressure to make sure you have all your facts buttoned up and that you have your story right. What was it, what's that feeling like Before, with, with a story like this, of this magnitude? Um, how does that feel?
1: I think so. the the story that I think of the most for that is last fall we published a story saying that Trump had been the one to to direct the payments that really laid out the details mm-hmm. of the conversations he'd had with Cohen and with um, with the people at the National Enquirer and its publisher and this was after more than a year of him denying that he had had any role in this and that was a story that really had been our goal from the very beginning but um but we'd been working on. That story alone for a couple of months and we it was really the most meticulous Mm -hmm. uh, edit process that I've ever gone through we would you know sit on conference calls for hours going through each word of the story and then I remember when it finally published uh, I think it was a a slightly different day than we had anticipated I was flying to LA and I so they don't even
0: give you a heads up it could be no we we
1: knew it was coming that day but I think I had thought it was going to be earlier in the afternoon so I was like on my way to the airport when they finally hit publish And of course, the first rush is like you want to tweet it out, sure. and we'd all prepared our tweets. Yeah. Um, but it's it's both a relief and I think then the panic sets in a little bit. But that was a story where I I knew that we had gone through it so carefully that yeah. there's nothing that was going to surprise us.
0: You you land, and does your does your inbox just explode with follow up questions and inc- uh, you know more questions? What what's that like?
1: Yeah, I think that was a story where, and this this doesn't happen a lot, at least to me, where a lot of sources had texted me the story, being like, "Wow," and like brutal for right, Trump, right, right, right. And that was a really exciting experience because you know you you never know how much pickup anyone's story is going to get. We knew that that one was going to make a splash, sure. but but it was rewarding to hear from members of Trump's own orbit that they mm-hmm. felt like that was. You know, th- they believed the story that they so felt like it was a big deal.
0: In terms of the s- sourcing your stories, have you found that at least in your coverage of the administration that uh, they tend to come to you, or is it is it um, are they these relationships originally um, developed through outreach and, and kind of prodding?
1: Definitely the latter. I think there are very few people that have sort of initiated contact over the years. Um, And I think, if anything, the people who sort of reach out to you first, you're always kind of wary of because it it seems like they're trying to push a certain agenda. agenda. Um, Which, you know, everyone is doing to a certain extent, but, but I think you're just more skeptical with those. So I think with the Trump administration, especially with the level of turnover that he's had, it's a lot of sort of, constantly trying to reach out to new people, develop new people as your sources and try and explain, you know, try and explain why it's important for them to talk to you. Mm -hmm. And so it's really been a good sourcing exercise, this whole administration, because you just, you can't
0: really stop. I think you have told me, I believe in the past, that you've actually interviewed the president and been in the Oval Office. Yeah. How many times have you made the trip to the White House to interview him,
1: we have had. I've been in two interviews that we've done in the last year. I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Tell me about the the first time you went. What was that like? Were you, were you nervous beforehand? Uh, just eager, excited? How would you describe? I it? I was extremely nervous. Yes.
1: Um, I was excited, but mostly for it to be over. <laughs> I would say. <laughs> sure. Um, it you know, it's a. I I had no real idea of what to expect. Um, some of my colleagues who had been on the team before me had interviewed him previously um but but had also i think just interviewed more high profile figures than i had in the past and so they were very calm but i i just didn't know you know is it going to be the combative trump that we see at rallies is he going to be happy to answer questions is he going to sort of challenge you and turn the question around on you and so that's what i was really worried about and um and it was i thought it it's a stressful interview in that he gives a very long response hmm. in answer to every question and he sort of has things he wants to talk about and you have to sure. you have like a half an hour and you need to try and keep him um do you, do on you track.
0: interrupt the president or what's the protocol there
1: that's the real uh key i think to the interview is figuring out like when he takes a breath that's when you jump you in because you don't want to interrupt him mid-sentence but but it's okay i think to interrupt him in a train of thought to try and steer him back to sure. what you're trying to ask about because we ultimately need to come out of the interview with a lead news mm-hmm. um, and if he if we let him sort of dictate the interview that
0: won't happen and I've heard with this I think is it's always a surprise to me when I hear it that so often people say that he's actually charismatic in um, in person or at least more charismatic Did did do you find that to be true
1: I think there's less of the sort of um, anger that you sometimes see in when he's publicly talking to reporters uh, at a press conference or on the White House lawn um, or certainly at his rallies. I think it's, he's he clearly likes talking to the press, as I think we've sure. seen over the last couple of years. And I think he's really happy to be in there answering reporters' questions. Um, so so he, it's pleasant in that sense that you don't feel like you need to um, prod something out of him and you don't feel like he's miserable sitting there with you and And often it's been the case where he, he's asked his aide you know his aide's been like we need to wrap this up okay. and he said we can have a couple more questions he's like yeah, clearly yeah, has yeah, wanted yeah. us to stay longer and so uh, it's just been interesting to see for someone who talks so much about the press and uh, fake news and mm-hmm. everything um, to see how much he really seems to enjoy those interviews and he's done more interviews I think than than, any, than Obama by yeah, far yeah
0: okay. I've noted that too. And when so when you're in the room, does it feel like your team is there with the president or, or are the aides uh, lingering? Does he have attorneys there? Um, how many people are in the room?
1: He's had, I think, two or three people in there for every interview that we've had. Um, and they will sometimes... Sometimes he'll refer to them. He'll say, you know, isn't that right, Sarah? Or Um, he'll ask them for a specific figure. And there have been times that they've interjected. But I think it's mostly to say, like, we need to wrap this up. It's They don't, to their credit, they don't try and stop us from asking certain questions um, or anything like that.
0: It sounds like it is a uh, it's an enthralling job that you have. It's as exciting as it gets, I would imagine. If you're into this type of work, uh, what would you say is the best the best element of it?
1: Um, that's a good question. I I mean I think it's just I guess what I would say is is for the White House job in general, one of the things that I've enjoyed the most is that you get to come into contact with so many different issues, mm-hmm. and different areas of policy, different areas of foreign relations, and I've gotten to work with people at the journal all over the globe, and that's been really exciting to me because I feel like I've just broadened my horizons sure. so much on this beat. Um, for Trump in particular, um, I would just say, again, the the level of engagement I've seen from readers and from people I know has been mm-hmm. really rewarding to feel like you're not writing into this void, but like yeah, people are really right, following right, what you're doing right. has been exciting.
0: It's Sounds like a tiring job. Is that would that be accurate to say? Yes. I think it's a tiring (laughs) job.
1: There's a lot of hours, but it's also it's been the most rewarding job I've had because it's the people are the most engaged. I mean, Mm -hmm. my friends who are not necessarily super into politics and don't always, you know, read political coverage are are reading my stories and reading other stories and asking me about them and that's been a really fun aspect.
0: Are you always on call or are you – do you have to always have to be checking your phone? Are you allowed to go on vacation?
1: I check my phone a lot on my own. But we actually have a great system on our team where we have people who are on duty and off duty. Okay. And if you're on duty, you need to be on call all the time, which is technically what I am right like 24/7. now. 24-7. Yes. Okay. Um, if you are not on duty, then you have time to sort of work on longer pieces sure. and meet, go to source meetings and that kind of thing. And our team is really collegial, really collaborative. We cover for each other when people have things that come up and things come up all the time. Mm-hmm. But um, but that rotation has really helped me feel like I'm not constantly
0: wedded to my phone, yeah, which right. is important. So, so I, I imagine that kind of wears out over time. That yeah. Kind of <laughs> and would you say that you have a certain reporting style or does the reporting style naturally kind of fit the mold given the, the subject matter you deal with with the, the newspaper itself?
1: Um, that's an interesting question. I don't know that I would say I have any distinctive style. Um, I think the key with with Trump world is to just sort of be talking to as many circles as possible because there are always a lot of different factions within the the orbit uh and within the white house and within Mm -hmm. the campaign and you want to make sure you're getting a sense of all sides of of any given argument and often you know if you just talk to one person you'll come away thinking the story is one thing yeah and you'll talk to another person and you'll realize it's something very different and so it's really just to be the i think volume is the most important thing a lot
0: of the time how is it uh, uh, joining together with other reporters to write a story is it easier when you partner is it is it uh, easier when you're just you're kind of you're the only byline on it and you're kind of running it
1: I love working with other reporters I think that's one of my favorite parts of the job mm-hmm. I, we have a great White House team but I've also really liked working with our investigative team our legal team um, various policy reporters the congressional team and i feel like most stories benefit when they have reporters with different coverage sure. areas or even reporters on the same team but who have different sets of sources
0: it helps you just cover ground right if
1: you cover ground you get all the perspectives and and i think it, it works much better that way
0: very cool going forward will you remain on the, the the white house beat is your is your coverage for reporting going to change at all
1: I'm staying on the White House beat until the election, at least, and then we'll see okay. what happens. But um, but I, I have really, I mean, we'll shift a little bit more to the campaign, I think, um, and that will probably pick up. It's already picked it's up. It's already picked up. But it will pick up even more. <laughs> I just think, it, it. I mean, I'm always interested in how the media will cover the, the race differently this time. I think you're going to see a lot more um, on-the-ground stories, talking to voters, um, less less ideally horse race stories where it says polls show so-and-so is up today and -and so-and-so is down because i think we saw the problems with that kind of coverage last time and
0: readers i guess were a bit or, or passive observers were a bit scarred by that because at least in their mind, the polls were showing one thing and then the outcome was different um so yeah i'll be i'll be curious to see uh, how grassroots the the reporting actually becomes as yeah, it gets closer. Me too. <laughs> so thank you very much for joining us. It's thank been you a for privilege, me. and uh, hopefully we'll have you back at some point in the future. Thanks. From the administration's handling of the coronavirus pandemic to the upcoming presidential election, you can follow Rebecca's reporting by reading The Wall Street Journal. You can also find her on Twitter at Rebecca Ballhouse. Beyond BC is a production of the Berkeley Carroll School's alumni office. It's hosted and produced by me, Tim Quinn, and executive produced and edited by Jamie O'Regan. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time as we share more alumni stories beyond BC.